what everybody was basically doing was coming together to try and find a version of America that we could wrap our arms around. The music was unbelievable. We came over the hill and it was biblical. People as far as your eye could see. I think what struck me was the sense of community. Everyone was talking to everyone else. It was a, just a very, very strong community. Woodstock taught us that we can get along, we can have change happen. There were like no boundaries. That was a fantastic feeling. From WNET in New York, hi, I'm Tom Stewart, and welcome to WNET Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening in the world of public media and help you get to know the people who make it all happen. This summer, 13 has been looking at three major events that took place exactly 50 years ago. In June, the Stonewall Riots in New York City took the struggle for gay rights to a new level. In July, the highlight was Apollo 11 and the first moonwalk. Here at WNAT Up Next, we've brought you two special episodes devoted to Stonewall and Apollo 11. And now it's time for us to look back at a music festival that's reached iconic status, Woodstock. And to share more with us is Jasmine Wilson from our Community Engagement Department. Jasmine, welcome to WNAT Up Next. Hi, it's great to be here. You've been involved in so many different aspects of our Summer of 69 project. It was a great unifying force, involved many different areas of the station. Can you tell us about some of the collaborations that have been taking place? Oh, boy. We have, in community engagement, collaborated with so many different people, both here at the station and outside of it. This has really been a team effort from people in production teams and social media, in archives. I mean, it's really great to work on projects like this because we get to see each other and we get to help each other and also think about where were we or how did these kinds of events affect us and impact us today. Mm -hmm. You were actually part of recruiting the people who yes. sat for the interviews, and some of whom we're about to hear. Can you share with us a bit about how that process played out and how you've found the people and who <laughs> they are? Yes, this was a lot of fun, and it was a multi-step process. We started off by putting a call out to people who receive our 13-week newsletter. And we were asking people in the area to reach out to us if they had any memories from Woodstock, from the moon landing, or from Stonewall. Mm -hmm. So I started reaching out to people through that. And there were so many people who had something to say that was about that summer. So several people that we ended up recruiting came from that process. I'd like to ask you a little bit about <laughs> Woodstock. Yes. Now, I know you are definitely not from the Woodstock generation, <laughs> I will say. Why do you feel that Woodstock has become such an important part of history? And why is this so necessary for us to give it a look this year? Woodstock is something that started it all in many ways when it comes to the way that we experience live music, especially during this time of the year. There are so many different summer festivals that happen in a variety of different genres that bring people together from all over the world to experience some of their favorite music and also discover new music. And I will say that although I'm not of the generation 
I have relatives that are who just barely missed it, who wish they could have gone to Woodstock. And I come from a family of music lovers, and I am a musician. And so this was also a special project for me because I had the opportunity to live vicariously through the folks who were impacted by something that, of course, has had a very, very strong presence in my life. So what have you learned from the Woodstock uh, people that you've talked to? Wow. It was a life-changing experience for every single person I spoke to. I find that the strongest memory is associated with community. Every single person that I spoke to mentioned in some way how strong the sense of community was and that they needed that in their part of life. There are people who were coming to Woodstock because they were about to go to college or they were afraid that they might have to go to Vietnam or they felt like they just didn't fit in. And Woodstock was a place where everybody could be. And it didn't matter who you were, how old you were, where you came from. It didn't matter if you had food with you or not, as long as you were okay with being a little muddy, because it was very <laughs> muddy. You could have a good time. And it seems like the good far outweighed the bad in terms of just how huge the festival ended up being. And we're going to hear some of those very specific recollections in just a few minutes. But I'd like to talk a little bit about our program schedule. I don't know if you've had a chance to see many of them. I got a chance to see one called Woodstock, Three Days That Defined a Generation. This is an American Experience show, which I found a lot of fun and very informative. I've seen clips of the Janis Joplin that's mm -hmm. going to be coming up. And I know that there were a few people who were interviewed for this project that got to see her. And that was a wild, a wild night for them. There's another one called Eyes on the 60s, which is the photography of a man named Rowland Sherman. And our own local Metrofocus program is having a special episode about Woodstock with Graham Nash and Professor Richard Thompson. And we'd like to point out here at WNAT Up Next that if people don't see broadcasts of these programs, this is now the world of streaming and internet access and multi-platform experiences. PBS.org, I believe, is one source for many of these programs, usually following the initial broadcast. And, of course, I would be very remiss if I didn't call all 13 members to join 13 again and make sure that their membership is active so that they can view this material on Passport. And I will also add that we have an abundance of interesting resources, videos, and clips for the summer of 69 at 13.org slash summer69. Okay, Jasmine, I think it's time for us to listen to some people from our area who can honestly say, <laughs> I was at Woodstock. Right now, Susan and Robert Heiferman were celebrating their first anniversary in the summer of 69, and they still have very vivid memories of their time at Woodstock. In the summer of 1969, we had heard about this great event that was going to happen, and I mentioned it to my mother that Robert and I were going to go to Woodstock. And my mother said, you can't go. I forbid you to go. And I said, Mom, I'm married. And she said, 
I don't care, you may not go. It's gonna be dangerous, there's gonna be thousands of people and traffic and, and you won't be secure. And I said, I'm gonna be with Robert, I'm, I'm fine. And so it was one of the first times I actually exerted some independence and I defied my mother and went with my hubby and we had an amazing time. We're in a position of having lots of food with us and people wanted to trade my food for their grass. We were very fortunate we did have some food and we had sleeping bags, though neither one of us can remember if we ever slept. On the way, as you pass each little lake, you would see lots of naked people swimming in the lakes, some with their pets, one fellow with a goat. And, uh, and my wife was somewhat alarmed and shocked by this. Uh, either that or she was faking <laughs> that she'd never seen anybody naked before, and, but she put on a pretty good act. And it was shocking, especially this one guy I saw was a redhead. So it was a very unusual experience for me altogether. So um, we also got soaked in the rain and the mud. I lost a shoe, so you might as well lose two shoes if you lose a shoe. And I, there is, you know, my mother is scolding me in the back of my head going, you know, she, she isn't all that stupid, my mother. <laughs> she was actually right. But I really wanted to go, and I think, frankly, I was fundamentally changed by going. So the, I, the music was unbelievable. We really went for the music. We were very much into folk singing, and uh, we'd always go on to concerts. And we'd go see Judy Collins and Phil Oaks and Richie Havens and Crosby, Stills, and Nash and, and all those people. We went, and the music was unbelievable because it may have rained all day Friday and Friday night, but Saturday was gorgeous, really, really gorgeous, a gorgeous day. And there were just hundreds of thousands of people, and it was like everybody knew everybody. I think minimally people agreed that 350,000 people were there. And to think that it was so peaceful and that the whole entire ambiance of the place was all about peace and love and music. And I think the intersection of where those meet is, is meaningful to me as we go forward in, t in terms of there weren't weapons and there weren't people scared. The, the only time someone got hurt, I believe someone actually did get killed, was because a bulldozer ran over them. And that, and that tragedy was terrible. But it wasn't because someone committed a crime. It was, it was an accident. And, and to know that people were helping each other, there were medical tents set up for people who were diabetic or people who had heart disease, I mean, all, all ethnicities and religions were there and it was really like a love fest and that that still gives me goosebumps to think that massive amounts of amounts of people can go forward like that and and get along peacefully it's, it's a, I think it's a great legacy that that Woodstock gives us right now she's WNAT's vice president of human resources but that summer Charlene Shapiro was a 17 year old high school student I think what was unusual about us is that we actually bought tickets. We bought tickets for one day. We were planning on going on Saturday. For some reason, $7 stands out in my mind as the price of the ticket. I think it was 21 for all three days, and we paid $7, but we actually had legitimate tickets. On, on Friday, the news reports were coming in about the rain and the rain and the rain and the mud and the mud and the mud. And we decided we were going to go anyway, because we were 17. And we went in my boyfriend's 57 Chevy, which had originally been blue, but he and his friends painted it psychedelic shades of purple. 
This thing was like a tank, and it's a good thing that we were in that car because once we got up to Woodstock, the roads were pretty much impassable. And because of this tank-like vehicle, we were able to actually get to the site and even park, which was amazing. As I recall, the only big name that we saw was Country Joe and the Fish, but it was hot, it was rainy, it was muddy, and we decided to leave. We went into the town, and what I don't recall, but uh, the friend I was with said that we had bikinis with us. Now, I'm not sure why we would have brought bikinis with us, but she said we went into a laundromat, changed into our bikinis, and washed our clothes, and that everyone in the town that was in the laundromat just stared at us as if we were from another planet. I did get a refund on my ticket, and I actually wish I still had the ticket because it would be a, worth a lot more than the $7 that was refunded. Some people are pretty shocked because I look so conventional uh, or traditional, and they don't see me as, you know, they think of like, uh, you know, peace and love and hippies and don't quite see me that way. So I think it's a little shocking, but I was a typical 17-year-old teenager. I wouldn't say I was a hippie. I would say I was leaning in that direction, but I, I was pretty conventional. I had a part-time job after school, and I was focused on college applications and just doing what teenagers do. So that was my Woodstock experience. Drew Seaman drove the family station wagon to Woodstock with two friends and had a weekend that would prove to have a profound effect on his entire life. We came over the hill and it was biblical. It was people as far as your eye could see. They looked like ants. It took our breath away. We sat down on a log. Uh, we were afraid if we went into the crowd that we'd get separated and we'd never find each other. So we sat down, took it all in and um, got up and we went into the crowd and that was it for the next couple of days. We didn't see the who, we heard them. It was Jefferson Airplane that came on. Then there was a break and then in the afternoon it was uh, Joe Cocker, Country Joe and the Fish, 10 years after, Sha Na Na, Crosby, Sills and Nash, who we never even heard of. It was an amazing feeling of optimism and belonging for us, me, being 16 years old. It was a real eye-opener that there were so many people that felt and looked like I did. I had a wide circle of friends, but nothing like on that magnitude. And as I said, I was proud that I went. I'm still proud that I went. But people were very kind and sharing. Obviously, someone saw we were cold or whatever, gave us a blanket. Uh, people shared wine. They made it out like it was a disaster area and, you know, you shouldn't go. And But, you know, it was pretty, pretty cool that people showed they could get along. I didn't see one disagreement, one fight or anything like that. Talk about mind expansion, coming over that hill and seeing all those people. It, it is an electrifying image in my mind that actually took my breath away was scary in a way, and it didn't even look like people. So that is the number one image, I would say. And I think we were lucky in a way because people that kind of drifted in and over the days, but for us, it was boom, all of a sudden from the dark coming over, the sun coming up, and then seeing it. That's an image that I'll take to my grave that I'll never forget. 
Adrian Liss went to Woodstock with three friends, and it became a life-changing experience. Really key moments just kind of stay in my mind. One is that very, very late at night, and everybody was just lying on the ground and sleeping or just lying there in the mud or on blankets and very, very tired. And one of the highlights for me was when um, Janis Joplin came on, and I remember that to this day. And because everybody was just lying on the ground and it was all mud, I was able to just kind of step around everybody and go right up to the stage. So I was able to see her, and I really loved uh, Janice. So and I was able to see her right, right there, right up to the stage, the whole performance. And that really stayed in my mind. Back then, I mean, this was so long ago, but back then, if you really looked a certain way, if your hair was a certain way, if your clothes were a certain way, if you're, etc., it was really representative of your values. But back then, it just meant something because most people didn't look that way or the guys didn't have long hair. That was the strongest feeling I had when I got there. It was like, oh my God, there's others like me. That was very, very meaningful to me. I just didn't feel so alone anymore after. People try to reproduce it, but it can't really be reproduced. It's almost like when Thomas Wolfe says you can't go home again. Well, I think this is the thing that with Woodstock, you really can't go home again. And um, you can get the music, you can get the mud <laughs> and that type of thing, but I just don't think you're getting the kindness back. And that was a big part of that movement. I went there for the music, but I came away with something a lot more important. Don Stark drove from Chappaqua in his red 1964 VW Beetle. And the three of us crammed into that, and I think the traffic was legendary. We got there before the festival started. Now, when we got there, there was this crowd of people heading in through the main gate, and the main gate had had a cyclone fence around it, a wire kind of fence, but it had been trampled completely because, what, 50 times more than the number of people they thought were gonna show up showed up. But being the good high school boy that I was, I stopped at the ticket stand and actually put my three days tickets down on the ticket stand and left them there. Many times I've looked back in the past and wished I'd kept them as a memento, but um, I left them there and uh, we headed in. We went down past the stage, went into this little copse of woods there, set up our tent. We had a tent with rations for the weekend and a case of wine, and we were ready for uh, what we thought was gonna be just a nice, quiet music festival, an opportunity to see a lot of good music. We had been up pretty much all night, so I remember listening to a couple of the acts in the morning, not really well-known acts, and I decided I was gonna take a nap. So I laid down on the grass, and. About 15, 20 minutes later, my friend Bob starts kicking me. He said, wake up, wake up. So I said, what? And it was Carlos Santana. It was Santana playing for the first time I think any of us had ever heard him. Um, he was absolutely amazing. So I did stay awake. We stayed awake from then on right through the night. After, uh, after Santana finished, uh, the bands played all afternoon, all evening. You know what, it's a, it's a long time remembering, but I remember Creedence Clearwater, I remember Janis Joplin was tremendous. I remember Mountain, I remember Sly Stone. And then at a certain point, The Grateful Dead came on. Music reached a pitch late, late, late in the morning, early in the morning, 
when The Who came on. And they played the rock opera Tommy, which was the first time any of us had heard it, as far as I know. And as they were reaching the end of their performance, the sun came up. And I've often said to people, if they ask me about what was my greatest experience in music, I don't think you can top watching The Who play Tommy as the sun comes up. It was pretty amazing. I remember them announcing that they crossed the New York State Thruway. I remember the military helicopters flying overhead and everybody's sort of laughing and, and talking. And I think what created that sense of commonality or experience of community was there was, there was no choice. I mean, we were here, we were stuck. There was variously described 300, 400, whatever, 1,000 people. Nobody had enough food, so everybody shared food. Nobody had enough beverages, water, so we all shared that. And I think the realization that this is where we are and this is what we have to do to get by created that community experience that I don't think I've experienced in any other mass experience before. I don't think we had any sense of what a large-scale event it was until we went back home. When we got there and we talked to people, they were talking about it like it was one of the world's greatest disasters. And that was the word at first, but it wasn't. It wasn't a disaster to it at all. It was um, uncomfortable at times, and it was wonderful all the time. And I think we, along with a lot of other people, were able to tell the people we met that, no, this, it wasn't a disaster. It was actually a wonderful time. The divide that occurred back then was between generations. So the younger generation, we did dress differently. We did wear our hair differently. We had different entertainment ideas. And every one of us heard our parents say, turn that garbage down or off. Um, but that, was, that created sort of a, a bond amongst our generation. Uh, the, the hair became a sort of a flag. But I don't think there's a sense of communality between any generational group now. There was so much wonderful music made then, right into the 80s, that it's, I know I sound a lot like my mom and dad who told me that I should listen more to Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra, and mom and dad, I, I do now, but uh, maybe it's just that each generation thinks its own music is the best music. Next, we're gonna hear from Ira and Maxine Stone, who were truly up close and personal at Woodstock. Ira actually performed on the opening night concert on August 15th with singer-songwriter Bert Summer. So the um, moment where we realized this wrinkle in time that ended up being called Woodstock and named a generation, when we recognized that this was a much bigger event than some little exposition with arts and crafts and, and some bands, was when we hovered in that helicopter over the ridge and uh, it's loud and scary. And we looked down and asked the pilot, what is that? And he said, that is a whole lot of people. At which point I said, can you turn around and take us home now? Because this was not at all what was expected. It was expected to be a, a, a smallish festival. The sight from above once you cleared that ridge to look down on that immense crowd, it was like a bunch of undulating colors that it looked like it stretched for a mile. Then, of course, we landed and we're in the backstage area. And I remember um, standing next to Bert Summer on stage before we played, looking out, and it was just mind-boggling because 
speaking for myself, I was used to playing clubs in Long Island. And you look out, and as far as the eye could see, you just see people and people and people. And um, I think that's when I realized that this is really pretty cool, but had no idea it would be named a National Historic Landmark 48 years later. Being backstage with, with all the performers was really a whole lot of fun. Uh, as an, an East Coast musician, I'd never met many of the people from California, and here we were in the same hotel with the Jefferson Airplane and backstage with the Grateful Dead and um, all the West Coast groups. And it was just a lot of fun. We had food, there was shelter, to prevent the rain from landing on you backstage. It was just like being backstage uh, at a venue like the Garden or something. It was really quite pleasant because we played early on Friday. We had the rest of Friday to hang out on the stage and listen to the bands. Saturday, we came back and were there for the whole day. We were on stage for The Who. We were on the stage for our friend Leslie Weston Mountain. Um, so we really had a blast. It was nothing but a lot of fun. Bert uh, got the first standing ovation for playing Simon and Garfunkel's America, which was what everybody was basically doing, was coming together to try and find a version of America that we could wrap our arms around. Because like today, it was a tremendously polarized culture. Our country was being pulled apart at the seams. So everybody was coming there looking for a way that they could live and understand and relate to what was happening in our world. The saddest part was that Bert Summer, who was uh, at 20, a uh, complete package, an amazing songwriter, deeply introspective, a voice that would range from the, the sweetest love songs to the raunchiest rock and roll was essentially left out of the equation. So many careers were kick-started by that event. And uh, because of record company politics, just because of a whole host of things that did not align, he was called by the Wall Street Journal the Lost Bard of Woodstock. And he called it the Woodstock Curse, including the fact that when Life Magazine's special edition came out in 1969, there's the listing of all the performers with Bert's name and photographs. And there's a photograph of me on stage sitting next to Bert, and they cropped him out of the photograph. I don't think it's been romanticized. It was a gathering of half a million people that was peaceful and I haven't heard bad stories about the Woodstock Festival like you hear from many other large gatherings like that. I think it showed that the, the audience were the real stars of the festival. That's true. And they got along, not that we were sitting out there in the rain with them with no food, but um, it was a largely successful, peaceful event that uh, is over the years has gotten its recognition. Jasmine, I'd like to ask a little bit more about you and what you do in community engagement and what that position really means. So here at Community Engagement, we work on a variety of projects that are local and national reaching that support 
the national programs that we have, as well as creating opportunities for people here in New York to participate and be involved. So what that looks like right now is a variety of things. On the national level, we are in the process of celebrating the 50th anniversary of Sesame Street. So we will be working with 10 different stations across the country to help celebrate Sesame Street's 50th birthday. The other thing that we do is we create opportunities for WNET and people in the area to discuss important topics. We have done community convenings. We do screenings. Sometimes we set up events at our studio at Lincoln Center. So community engagement is in many ways about how can we really put the public in public media. And how do you build the audience for these events? How do people know about these screenings and these events? We will advertise it through our newsletters. We might see a spot that is on our air, put it on social media. Pretty much any way that we can reach people, we'll let people know about it. That sounds great. And you, again, are a performer as well. How has your performing and your your other passions and interests uh, contributed to what you do here at WNET? Well, it's fantastic to be in a place that loves the arts. And as a person who grew up in the arts, I love being around other individuals who celebrate and appreciate and understand how transformative being able to experience something like the arts can be. I've had the opportunity to write a blog for uh, great performances at the Met. So if you ever are curious about what's coming up or what had just passed in their season, that's um, me there <laughs> that wrote something. I also love that I can share some of this great content with my friends and family outside of these walls and let them know that there are some amazing things happening in New York, both locally and on a national level. Jasmine, thank you so much for helping us celebrate the summer of 69. And I think we're going to conclude our celebration with Ira and Maxine Stone again, singing a song by Bert Summer, who appeared on that famous opening night at Woodstock on August 15th of 1969. Here are Ira and Maxine. Jennifer's something you handle with care 
Ira and Maxine Stone with Jennifer, a song by Bert Summer that was performed on stage on the opening night of Woodstock in August of 1969. So many people to thank. Uh, thanks to everyone who's had a hand in our three-part look at the summer of 69. Uh, WNET's Katie Young for her interviews, to Chris Chaika, who's the Senior Director of Community Engagement for his support, of course, to our guest today, Jasmine Wilson. Also thanks to our editor, Samantha Lobo, our audio engineer, Josh Broom, and to our executive producer, Dana McBride. Thank you for listening, and be sure to be with us again next time. Share your questions and comments with us at upnext at WNET.org, and of course, do become a subscriber. WNET Up Next is a presentation of the Design and On-Air Promotion Department of WNET New York. I'm Tom Stewart.